So we're in Psalm 7. We're sort of in the middle of it. Um, let me quickly review. Uh, the, the, the psalm, it's, it's another lament psalm, if you remember those categories. It is a psalm of David. It is a psalm that he intended to be put to music. And you see that in the superscription. It's a, it's a psalm um, that really is, and I entitled it, if you remember last week, An Appeal of the Innocent. But David, uh, whatever the exact circumstances are, we simply don't know what they were. David is innocent of, of a series of charges that individuals, friends, um, cohorts within his kingdom, we just don't know who, who they are specifically have been leveling a series of very unfair charges at him. They are summarized in verse 3 and verse 4. If it's wrong in my hands, if I repaid my friend with evil, etc. And then what he does is because he's innocent, and he is absolutely convinced he's innocent, he appeals to God. And then in verse 6, you see those really remarkably bold imperatives. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. So, I mean, it's um, really bold, almost audacious, almost you can hardly believe it that he would talk to God that way. But it isn't, it certainly isn't blasphemous, and it certainly isn't, in that sense, wrong, because David knows that the only place that he can find uh, satisfaction, can find fairness, can find a, a a reasonable judgment is at the hands of God. And the only one that can really be his advocate is God. The only one that can really uh, state his case is God. And so what he does then, and this is what makes this psalm so incredibly relevant even to us today, he appeals to one of the primary attributes of God and one of the, in terms of all of Scripture, one of the, the primary responsibilities that God executes now in space-time history and will execute at the end of time, when God will make all things right, when God will deal with every injustice, um, every, every act of evil, every discrimination, every prejudice, every evil thought, God will bring everything to bear and will make everything right. So as you look at verse 8, that is in effect what David is doing. He's like stepping back and giving this huge macro 100,000 foot look at what God will do, what God does do, and therefore, applying it to his specific situation, God will be my advocate. God will make this right. However long it's going to take, uh, whatever it's going to take, he is appealing to what he knows about his God. And you, you've heard me say a number of times in this study that we've been doing of the various Psalms, that the psalmist knows God. The psalmist knows his God, and he's able to appeal to what he knows about his God to deal with whatever the specific circumstance in his life is. And in this case, 
he's absolutely innocent, whatever the charges are, however it is, uh, whether it's a group of people, individual, or whatever, God's going to ultimately make it right. So with sort of that introduction, quick summary, now let's pick up. It, this is filled with a lot of quite wonderful theology <clears throat> about God and about what God will do, what God, I should say, what God is doing and what God will do. Let me make one other comment about this. When I was studying this Monday, it occurred to me again that in many ways, this fits with the Jewish people, and specifically Mordecai, Esther, in the book of Esther, as they are dealing with the arch enemy Haman. And if you're not familiar with that, go back and read. It's not a real long book, but Esther is a queen of the Persian Empire. And Haman, who absolutely hates the Jews, gets the king of, of, of Persia to issue an order of genocide to wipe out the Jews throughout the entire empire, which would be basically the world. And how God turns all of that into an incredible vindication of Mordecai and exactly what Haman had prepared for Mordecai actually ends up happening to Mordecai. God is a God of justice. God is a God that accomplishes his purposes and his wills in his time. And so this is what David is appealing to. So let's, with all of that introduction, look with me at verse 8. The Lord, and notice again that's in capital, so that's Yahweh, the self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am of the universe, judges the people. And that, in, in Hebrew, it's, it's plural, goyim, it's all peoples. So there is, therefore, and the conclusion of that, therefore, there's always justice. Because God, the Lord Yahweh, judges the peoples. You can always, always, always assume justice will win out. And you're probably sitting there and saying, wait a minute. <laughs> I know a little bit about history, and history is filled with injustice after injustice after injustice. That is correct. This is a sin-cursed, fallen, broken world. And injustice permeates this world. But look at history. What civilizations, what nations that have been purveyors of injustice, instituting slavery in the Greco-Roman world, horrific acts of, of incredible brutality against people. Think of the Assyrian Empire, burning and destroying and stacking the bodies of all the people they conquered at the gates. Do those empires, those civilizations still exist? No, they do not. God's justice permeates history, and ultimately God's justice will occur in its final stage at the great white throne. That's in Revelation 20, when God will completely banish evil, banish sin, banish Satan, banish Antichrist, banish the false prophet, etc., etc., into the lake of fire. God's wheels of justice turn. They may be perceived by us as turning slowly, but they turn. And I'm trying to establish what David is really establishing here. God is a God of justice. And God, therefore, does work in history and ultimately at the end of history to make every wrong right, 
to, to deal with every evil and to bring justice into this world. So giving that premise, then David appeals in, in verse 8, judge me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. God, you know me. You, you know what I'm like. You know my character. You know that this is unjust. So now, Lord, you examine. Are all of these charges that have been leveled against me, are they right? And of course, he is so convinced that he will be vindicated. He says, God, you examine me. My righteousness, my integrity. Then verse 9, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. So he personalizes at the end of verse 8, then he makes another broad statement at the beginning of verse 9 that applies to his specific situation, but also applies in a macro way. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end. May you establish the righteous. Will God establish the righteous at the end of history? Absolutely. Will he let evil come to its wicked end? Yes, absolutely. When you read the account of the tribulation in Revelation 6 through 18, you see evil unleashed in an unprecedented way, but you see it come to an end as well at the end of the book. And then he can, he concludes that appeal in the middle of verse 9, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God, you who examine, you are righteous. You, the one who evaluates, you are righteous. You have every right to do that. And you have what is needed to do that fairly, equitably, and justly. As I said last week, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is our fullest account of that, you see that's what Jesus is saying. God is interested not only in our outward acts, God is interested in our inward motives, our hearts, our attitudes, and only God can cleanse those. Only God, and that's his business, transforms us from the inside out. And so David is able to say with extreme confidence, you test with that penetrating eye of perfection. You test the minds and hearts of people, which, of course, is, to me, both convicting but comforting. Convicting in the sense that this is what God is interested in, his righteousness that he's interested in is not just an external facade, that's Pharisaism, but an internal transformation. And this is what God is doing in each one of our lives, and every one of you, I think, would concur with that. God is dealing with your motivations, is dealing with your attitudes, is dealing with the, the aspects of our heart, so that he is able to say with confidence, God, that's that's the level of your examination, O righteous, perfect, holy God. And you're the only one that can do that. So again, these statements of King David in this extraordinary psalm 
not only apply to his very specific situation, which, which, whatever the exact circumstances are, but at a huge macro level. And when I study uh, a psalm like this, I think of I think of the 20th century as an historian, which was absolutely the most barbaric century in human history. It is estimated 100 million people died in the 20th century. This is all of World War I, World War II, and the communist purges of, of that century under Lenin, under Stalin, and under Mao Zedong. Over 100 million people. I think all of you would agree, man, that is monstrous, horrific evil. But Nazi Germany doesn't exist anymore. With the last 1,000 years, it lasted 12. The communist utopia of Lenin was to last for 1,000 years. It lasted 70. It brought horrific evil, awful loss of life, terrible suffering. But God brought it to an end. And so David is able to step back and make these extraordinary statements about God as the righteous judge, God who works righteously in history, and make that appealing to his own specific situation. So as we look to verse 10, he then can say, this just, holy, righteous God that he knows personally and loves can declare, my shield is with God, verse 10 who saves the upright in heart. A just God is one who protects his people. A just God is one who delivers the righteous. Now, again, this is an absolute statement, but it can only be totally and completely understood within the context of eternity, because there are martyrs there are people who are persecuted for the name of Christ. There are people who suffer. But God's eternal evaluation and eternal weighing of the balances, and that's why when you read, and some of you have, and Fred, you're reading the biography of Tyndale, you know he's going to be martyred at the end. He's going to be executed because he's trying to translate the Bible into English. So he would say, as he did at the end of his life there in Belgium as he's standing to be killed, my shield is with God. He saves the upright. Well, he didn't save his life. He was a martyr. But ultimately, what Tyndale did was eternally significant, made an enormous impact, and 80% of the King James Bible is based on Tyndale's translation. Now, I'm, I'm adding things historically just because Fred and I were talking about that. But this, this tremendous confidence that David, it just exudes from his character as he writes verse 10. I'm preaching a little more here than just teaching. But are you with me? Do you understand? Any questions? Tremendous. Yes. Um, um, I have a question on verse 9. Um, right. it, uh, it, it says that uh, you establish the righteous who test the minds and hearts. Um, underneath that is actually um, uh, the concept of kidneys. Yes. Um, could you go into that a little bit, talking about the you know the emotion versus the the mind? Is this is this the uh, in, intent and will 
um, I, I've, I've been confused about that term. It seems to be used in parts of the scripture. And I'm, I just don't understand the, the, either the history, culture, well, behind that. the, the, the actual, um, the actual Hebrew of the end of verse nine is hearts and kidneys. That's, right. that's actually what it is. And that's the, I read from the SV translation to bring that into English has no meaning to us at all. We, we don't even know what that means, hearts and kidneys. But in the ancient world, the heart was a metaphor for the will and the mind of how we think and decision, make decisions. And the kidneys were the center of our emotions um, as, uh, as, as, as well as the intentionality of our will. And so when we think of emotions, that kind of an, actually those two words are related. That's there. There's where you get the idea of, of our attitudes, our, our emotional attitudes about things, as well as our motivation. Because sometimes if you're a very impulsive person, it's your emotions that cause you to make a decision. You don't think through it. You just act. An impulsive person who's often driven by emotions, and that's what causes them to act, which is not a very wise way to live. So what David is trying to say, that's why the ESV has translated it as mind, which is a way of thinking where we think through and, and work through a decision-making process, and our heart, which they're using here as kind of the center of our emotions. And God judges both. Uh, God, um, well... Maybe you could even say God evaluates both. God is interested in both. And again, that's why I referred to um, the, the, uh, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, because that's what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He's trying to challenge the Pharisaic legalism of first century Judaism. You've heard it said you should not uh, murder, but I say to you, okay, everybody, every Pharisee would say, I never committed murder. I'm holy and righteous. I'm not guilty of that Jesus said, okay, now wait a minute. You know what God is really interested in? Is both your mind, what's going on in your mind, your thought life, and all. If you call your brother, you call a human being a, ma a terrible name, a demeaning name, you're guilty. Well, that is not how the Pharisees at all thought about that. So Jesus is kind of getting at that. God is interested in our thought life He's also interested in our emotions, and both of those can produce actions which are, uh, which are terribly sinful uh, in, in God's eyes. And it, it challenges us, and that's why I think the Sermon on the Mount is such a powerful passage of Scripture. It challenges us to think more deeply about what God is really interested in, not just my external act and bringing my life externally and how I act, but also message, the ideas of my heart and my mind. God is interested in all that. Our thought life is as important to God as our emotional life. And that's why James in James chapter 1, verse 13 and following, talks about the development of sin is thought, desire, action. Thought is not a sin, but a wise person is going to deal with their thought life. A wise person is going to deal with what they put into their mind and so on. 
Russ, does that kind of get at what you're? Yeah, okay. it's all right. Good. In in this format, I, that'll give you some a stepping off point. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's quite powerful. All right. If no more questions, look with me then at verse eleven. <coughs> Excuse me. Now here again, he's kind of stepping back and taking this big picture view. God is a righteous judge. That's a declarative statement. That's a propositional statement. That's a truth statement. God is a righteous judge. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this in a sense in Romans 1. No one is ever going to be able to stand before God, as would mean at the great white throne, and say, you're being unfair to me. Yeah, well, he says of, of, of the person who rejects God's revelation, they are without excuse. So God is a righteous judge. No one is ever going to be able to look God in the eyes and say, you are being unfair to me. You are being unjust to me. And he adds, and a God who feels indignation every day. What in the world does that mean? Every day. God takes note of evil. Every day, God feels, and it's a word, in the Hebrew, it's a word, a strong emotion. God feels the indignation and the betrayal and the rebellion of sin every day. Nothing goes unnoticed by God. My mother used to say to me when I was a little boy, Jimmy, be sure your sins will find you out. Now, she was trying to get me to behave. She was trying to get me to be a good boy. But she was saying something that's totally biblical. God doesn't miss anything. So, again, that is both comforting for us as believers, but also convicting especially for those who reject the Lord. You can't hide anything from God. You, you, you can't pretend or think or in any way consider, well, maybe I got away with this and God missed it. And I'm not trying to be a doom and gloom, fire and brimstone preacher here, but David is simply floating a statement of propositional truth. God is a righteous judge. And he doesn't miss anything. He feels the indignation, the, 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 the consequences of the rebellious nature of humanity every day. Therefore, verse 12, if a person, a man, does not repent. Now, here, here David uses a, a bunch of metaphors. These are metaphors for judgment. The, these would be very applicable and relevant and understandable in the ancient world, a little more difficult perhaps for us in the modern world, but God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Well, he's using the, the metaphors of warfare to simply say, God will hold you accountable. And like a king who's about to judge a 
rebellious part of his kingdom. He's got his sword, his bows, his deadly weapons, his arrows ready. Well, David is saying, God will hold you accountable. Because God is a righteous judge. And every day, sin is not unnoticed by him. He knows everything that happens. He will hold you accountable. Verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil, is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. There is exactly, verse 14 is exactly what James says in his epistle, James chapter 1, verse 13. Sin starts as a thought, conceives evil, pregnant with mischief. There it becomes a desire, gives birth to lies. That's the action. And so he's, he's using the metaphor of a birth, the birth of a baby, the birth that a mother uh, carries through her body to talk about the the evolution of sin in a human being. This is what God notices. This is what God is aware of. Now, let me step back with these very profound statements about God, this big picture, macro pictures of God. He's a righteous judge. He holds you accountable. He understands the evolution of sin, thought, desire, action, like the birth of a baby, it conceived, pregnancy gives birth. And I want you to think with me, how does God deal with this through Jesus? Because God who understands and nothing is unnoticed by him, every day he feels this indignation of rebellious humanity, his creatures rebelling against him. He holds them accountable. But he solves the problem of the human condition through Jesus. I'm telling you, and I know you know this, but you've got to factor in to what's in verse 12, 13, and 14 with this also fabulous, fantastic, extraordinary, awesome, propositional truth. God solves our problem through Jesus. So what he does, because humanity's righteousness is like filthy rags, Isaiah says, There's nothing we can do to merit and win God's favor. So he sends Jesus, in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, who becomes sin for us, who dies a horrible death on a terrible cross, pays the price for our sin, redeems us from our sin, conquers the penalty death through his resurrection. And so God solves our problem through the program of redemption. I just want to make sure that you factor in the grace of this righteous judge solving our problem through Jesus. Now, I didn't hear any amens there. You missed a great place for an amen. But I have a question for you. It's a progression you're saying through our lives 
and we can take from where we started to where we are <coughs> and and realizing uh, that Christ is there offering forgiveness for us and that we we can't lament the past. Uh, would you say that we we have to be and Paul says, I leave behind that which, because he, he was responsible for so much, and he could have lived in that anguish, but he didn't. And how can you address? Uh, well, as, as right. I mean, that, uh, use the example of Paul. I mean, if you look at verse 11, God is a righteous judge who feels indignant every day. The apostle Paul threw a Christian into jail, persecuted a Christian before he met Christ in Damascus Road, undeniably killed many Christians. God felt that indignation every day. It did not go unnoticed. But now, again, if you use the way I talked about it, God solved that problem by sending Jesus, and then Jesus smashing into Paul's life on the Damascus Damascus Road and revealing to Paul who really is Jesus. He is your Messiah. And as you all know, because the rest of the New Testament shows us that, here transformed this guy. A guy who was persecuting and hating and trying to destroy the church becomes the great theologian of the church in his great uh, 13 epistles that he wrote. And as he would write in the book of Philippians, which is, for me, is always one of the most very personally applicable things that I've hung on to since 1972. He does not look back. He only looks forward. And I think that becomes part of that among many, many, many other things, but part of that transformational process, that transformed life that God now wants us because he solved our problem. Amen. As the judge, he solved our problem by judging Jesus, which is exactly you know, what happened at the cross. He poured out his wrath on Jesus. He judged Jesus. And that's why for those who reject that great gift of salvation, uh, God will uh, will um, separate them from him for the rest of eternity. Thank you, Dr. Eckman. Yes, Fred, go ahead. Um, so actually what, what David is doing is actually referring back to the Abrahamic covenant, when when God took all all of this on to to protect Israel and bring Israel under His wing. Well, that's 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 right. Yes, that's right. That's right. Then, uh, if we, it would be all right if I go on any other. Okay. Then in verse fifteen and sixteen, here is where. Again, I, I hope you, you know enough about the story of Esther to recall that. But when I was studying this in verse 15, 16 on Monday, I thought of Haman. Because that is exactly what happened to Haman. What he had prepared for Mordecai, that is what Haman had prepared for Mordecai, actually ends up being prepared for him. And he is executed on the gallows that he had been built to kill Mordecai. So if you look at verse 15, he makes a pit. This is referring to the evil one that's described in verse 12, 13, 14. He makes a pit, digging it out, falls into a hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, 
and on his own skull, his violence descends. And again, David is, is using a whole bunch of figures of speech and metaphors, but he's that the evil one is digging the pit. He's, he's creating the trap to catch you, to catch me. In this case, it would be very specifically David. But it turns out that the, the whole thing's turned upside down, and God, who is a God of justice, turns it completely on its head, and the pit which the evil person dug is the one that he actually falls into. Again, this is metaphorical figurative language. But as my mother used to say, be sure your sins will find you out. God, who every day notices what we do, holds us accountable. And, and if, if that's, what, that's why as Christ solves our problem, we no longer look at God as judge who's condemned us to eternal separation from him. He's now our heavenly father who has rescued us and saved us. But if you go back to the book of Esther, what Haman had plotted and planned for Mordecai is exactly what happens to him. And, you know, when you read, you read, I, I just, I think of this so many historical figures like Alexander the Great and what he wanted to build, the great thing he wanted to do with his horrible methodology ended up dying of malaria in Babylon 323 B.C. Julius Caesar, who was a brutal, brutal ruler, named Dictator for Life, ends up being assassinated in 44 BC. Adolf Hitler, who plotted this incredible vision of an autocratic, horrific empire, committed suicide in the bunker in Berlin. And I mean, I mean, you should go on and on and on. Mussolini, who did that, trying to restore the glory of Rome, ended up being executed by the Italian people and hung upside down on a, on a pole of a, of a gas station in, in, in Milan, Italy. God turns the tables. Sometimes he does it in history, in space-time history. Absolutely he will do it at the end. Nobody can ever think they're going to get away with it. And that's what David is appealing to. God is a God of justice. In Christ, God's justice and grace meet at the cross. And those who reject that will experience the justice of God at the great white throne. Another way I love to put this, God is going to make everything right. For those who accept the gift of salvation through Jesus, he makes it right through Christ. For those who reject the gift of God's grace in Jesus, he will make it right at the great white throne judgment, and he will banish evil from his creation. Thank you. On the historical figures that you just cited, we sit here under this teaching and it's terrific to hear it, but the people you cited, they, you're saying that they are equally at fault for rejecting the message of absolutely. Yes, Christ. Absolutely. And, and we don't know the historical communications that were ongoing then and 
but the presence of the Holy Spirit. How, I mean, have you ever thought through that as far as they are just as equally guilty as anyone who has ever lived? Right. Right. I, I, I know if I'm missing your point. I mean, I, I agree with you, but I'm we, not sure. We tend to stratify sin, you know. Oh, I'm okay, but that guy, he's really bad, right? Oh, and see. God says that our righteousness, the best that we could put up is like used tampons, basically, as filthy rags yep. in, in Isaiah. So we, God doesn't look at it like that. It's, you know, you, you violate one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. And we're always trying to mollify ourselves by saying, oh, well, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Look what that guy did. That makes me righteous, and it doesn't. It just makes me different. <laughs> but still guilty. But still guilty. Yeah, yeah, no. I'm sorry if that's what you were saying, Fred. I missed that uh, point. I apologize. Because, and thank you, Rush, for correcting it if, if that was the point. But, I mean, that's right. I mean, all, what's the message of Romans 3.20? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I was using those examples from history because they, they exemplify and illustrate people with great power and great authority d doing horrific things. And in space-time history, God brought them to account. And, and we can look at that and say, God brought them to account. I don't only, you know, attribute the destruction of Hitler's empire to the United States and Russia and England and all the allies. I also attribute it to God working through history to accomplish right. justice. He holds yes. nations accountable. And history shows that. But in terms of all of humanity, what Fred and Russ were saying is, is absolutely correct. We can't stratify and stratify and compartmentalize. Well, I'm not as bad as they are. Well, we may not have killed six million Jews, but we're still guilty before God and in need of a savior. And that's what, of course, as I said earlier, that's how God solves our, our problem. It's quite a wonderful. Well, I was kind of pushing for the point uh, also here was um, that... Um, they they knew what they were doing was wrong and against God's will. I mean, we think of these historic characters and we think, well, you know, they didn't have a Bible study. Maybe they didn't look at a Bible. But they are guilty as anyone would be from the beginning of time. That's right, yeah. And, but... But by what revelation were they guilty? I guess that would be the crux of it, Jim. Well, um, as we've said before in, in the class here over the years, there are, there are four revelations of, of God. And again, this is in Romans 1, 2, and 3 and other places. But anyway, it's God's creation. In other words, nature, what we see, his creative world, conscience, Romans chapter 2, and, and in that whole chapter, and, then, and thirdly, God's moral law, and then finally, Jesus, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And 
I mean, I, I can't I can't tell you every one of those individuals, but I do know I've read Ian Kershaw's two volume biography of Hitler. Adolf Hitler was exposed to the Bible. Adolf Hitler knew what the Bible taught. Adolf Hitler understood the Bible. And that, so he would have been exposed to all four of those revelations, and he suppressed all of them uh, in, in unrighteousness, in the words of Paul. So any one of those four revelations is at, this is not an original way to put it, but every one of those revelations is sufficient for condemnation. Any one of those revelations you reject is sufficient for condemnation. That's part of what Paul says in Romans 1. No one's ever going to stand before God and say, I never knew about you. God has revealed himself in four primary ways. And what the human race has done with those is suppress them, generally speaking. All right, let's conclude this psalm then, which um, is just, again, a tremendous declaration of of praise and thankfulness because of what he has just reviewed about his God and his appeal in as innocent, whatever those charges were before God, I will give thanks to the Lord, to Yahweh. The thanks due to his righteousness, that's his character. That's who he is. At the vital center of God is his holiness and his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord. And then he he uses one of the t- titles of God, the Most High, which in Hebrew is El Elyon. It's not a real typical, but it does occur quite a bit in the Old Testament. But he chooses to cite just one of the titles. I go, will give praise to the name of the Lord, El Elyon, the enthroned, high, majestic God. And it's just another way of affirming his his righteous position as the, the, the holy judge who sits enthroned in, in, his, in his heaven. And so I just, I love Psalm 7 because uh, the appeal of the innocent to God, but in that appeal, David knew his God and he knew the character and nature of his God. And he knew that God is a perfect righteous judge who doesn't miss anything and then I love to intersect that, of course, with, as we did already, with Jesus and how God solves our problem in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, all right. Well, I hope that was a blessing to you. Uh, as I said, I, I absolutely love to teach this psalm. It's a great psalm. Well, Psalm 8, which is the last psalm we're going to do in this cycle, we will do some psalms again uh, uh, later on in, in in our class, but we're going to study John for a while. But anyway, uh, this is a psalm uh, I have entitled uh, this psalm, uh, The Glory of God Manifested. The Glory of God Manifested. And this psalm, Psalm 8, is used in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, applying it to Jesus. Applying it to Jesus in his incarnation. Applying it to Jesus uh, in in terms of what he's accomplished, but his glory and his glory and majesty through the incarnation. But it is a it is a psalm that a, a lot of people who don't even know much about the Bible or know much about uh, our faith are familiar with Psalm eight because it's quoted in a lot of different places in literature and so on. 
but I want to, I'd like to read, I'd like to read the entire Psalm and we'll go back and take it apart. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established the strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, the, the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands that put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whichever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so this psalm, among other things, does look at the created world, God's creation, as a revelation of who he is. It's one of those psalms that opens up for us the depth of meaning of the natural revelation of God or what we sometimes call theology, the general revelation of God in his creation, his works. So if you look at verse 1 with me, I want you to notice the, the, the two different Hebrew words here. It's what the editors try to do, what the translators try to do, is show the difference by capitalizing one and not capitalizing the other. O Lord is in capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Our Lord, capital L, small O-R-D. If you would read this in Hebrew, it would be, O Yahweh, our Adonai. So it's, um, it's, it's a tremendously important combination of two titles for God in the Hebrew language, Yahweh and Adonai. Yahweh is a reference to his being the self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am of the universe. Adonai is a reference to his sovereign, majestic power as the Lord of the universe, as the king of the universe. Yahweh focuses on his being. Adonai focuses on his power and his position. Uh, Yahweh focuses on the, the creative power. Yahweh is the term used of God in Genesis 2. Adonai refers to his enthroned, powerful, providential sovereignty. So David, who did write this psalm, David says, O Yahweh, our Adonai, our, he's ours, the Jewish people. This is a psalm that would be sung in the temple, in the, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in their worship. So Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic. Very difficult to know how to translate that wonderful Hebrew term. How lofty, how high, how noble, how splendid is your name in all the earth. What's he saying? Your greatness, your power, your majesty, your nobility is demonstrated by your dominion over your creation. I want to know what you're like. I look at what you've created. I want to know the character of you. I look at your earth. I look at what you've created. I look at your dominion. And then 
he reviews that. And he reviews in verse, the end of verse one through verse two and so on. He reviews, how, how does he rule? What's this like? Well, you have set your glory above the heavens. Okay, now what does that mean? The, the, the glory is the manifestation of Yahweh, of Adonai. It's his glory. It's it's the 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 essence of who God is, if you can see it. It's what the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, saw on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, when they saw momentarily the glory of Jesus revealed. It's what John tries to describe in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. It's what Isaiah tries to describe in Isaiah chapter 6. What When they see the enthroned, majestic God, how do you describe it? Well, David goes beyond and says, your glory is beyond your personal creation. It's beyond the heavens that I see. It's enthroned in the heaven, which is the site, the place of your throne room. And then he adds, this is really remarkable, out of the mouth, mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength before your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. And so you say, whoa, you go from his incredible majesty and power and glory that's revealed in his creation, beyond transcendent, beyond his creation, yet strength to still the enemy and the avenger comes out of the babes, mouths of babies and infants. What appears weak, humanly speaking, is really strength. And verse 2, because the Jewish people were the first ones to read this and sing this and hear this, it's referring to them. Out of the mouth, the babies and infants, the Jewish people the children of God, chosen by him to be his representatives in this pagan, idolatrous world, you've established strength. I mean, Israel, when you look at it, it's a tiny little speck. It isn't very large. Even today, it's about the size of the state of New Jersey. And even back in the ancient world, the 12 tribes get their land grants at the end of Joshua, it's still very small but they're God's people. And what humanity considers to be small and insignificant and weak is the source of God's power and God's strength. And that's, of course, there's so much you can do with that because that's exactly what the incarnation is all about. That's exactly what the cross is all about. That's exactly what the plan of redemption is all about. It seems silly, but even babies and infants can articulate the significance of what God's doing. When Paul will write, when I am weak, then I am strong. The counterintuitive nature of how God works. Out of weakness, humanly speaking, he seems to work to still evil in this world, to still the enemies, you know, to still, to stop, to, you know, to make silent the enemies and the avengers. 
of God. It's an extraordinary statement that summarizes how God does things. It's counterintuitive, so often the way God works. You, you, you think he would you think he would use his extraordinary power to annihilate and snuff out everything. No, he's a God of love and a God of grace who extends a magnanimous chesed hand to all of humanity. And he does it through the cross, which to the Jew is, is stumbling block. To the Greco-Roman mind is utter absurd foolishness. I'm quoting from Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians. And then, what time is it? Then, he looks in verse 13. When I look at the heavens, now he's back to the creation of God. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, God doesn't have fingers, that's an anthropomorphism. It's God's creative work. The moon, the stars, which you set in place, that takes you back to Genesis chapter 1. When I look at your creation, now, when David wrote these words about 1,000 B.C., about 3,000 years ago, he did not understand the majestic glory he's talking about. You and I do. You and I have a better understanding of verse 3 than David did, because you and I have the advantage of the Hubble telescope. You and I can see. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You've seen those photographs in National Geographic and all over the place. Absolutely stunning photographs. I'm an amateur, believe me, a real amateur astronomer, but I love I love to study that stuff. I mean, I just I stand in awe at some of those photographs. And so David could, if, if we could write it in 2020, when I look at the heavens through the photographs of the Hubble telescope. I ask this question, verse 4, what is man that you're mindful of him? Let me paraphrase that. In light of the heavens which you've created, what is man? What, what is the human race that you pay attention to him, that you think about him? I don't even understand that. We're so frail. We're so insignificant compared to everything else you've created. And the Son of Man, now that's why this is quoted of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2, but the Son of Man that you care for him. And David wrote this 3,000 years ago. He's absolutely stunned when he looks at God's creation in the heavens and asks, we're so frail. We're so insignificant. Why do you even pay attention to us? Why, why, do you, why do you even think about us? And then he adds, verse 5, yet, yet, you have made him a little lower than heavenly beings. The angels, usually that's translated, crowned him with glory and honor, with dignity, with importance. What does that mean? Verse 6, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds, fish. You see, listen, go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, into the beginning of chapter 2 of Genesis. That's exactly what God did. He created Adam, 
In his image, he created Adam, and he gave Adam dominion, authority over his world. Adam, rule over the beasts of the field. Adam, rule over the sheep, oxen, rule over the birds of the sky, rule over the fish of the sea. Have dominion over my world. One theologian has put it this way. Humanity is God, is God theocratic steward. So David is stunned because what David is referring to in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8 is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and following. So he asks the question rhetorically, in light of what you've created, how can you pay attention to us? And yet you have, you've given us dominion, authority over your world, O God. Now, how does this apply to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2? It applies to Jesus' incarnation. And in Jesus, what was lost in Adam will be restored. Because you see, the dominion authority that God has given to humanity is still there. But dominion authority is now... It's it's a horrible reality. It's tarnished by sin, tarnished by the curse. That's why I I was out late yesterday afternoon. You probably are all. I've got dandelions. Dandelions are not in Eden. Dandelions were not. Adam did not have to pick dandelions out of his yard. He did not have to deal with squirrels digging up tulip bulbs. But we do. That's why we shoot them. I'm just kidding, but you know what I mean. But the point is, what what he's reviewing here is, and that's how the Hebrews chapter 2 applies this to Jesus. For a brief time, he's made a little lower than the angels. But it will not be long till he's crowned again as the King of kings and Lord of lords and will restore the pure, perfect dominion authority to the human race. And we are joint heirs with Jesus. We will rule and reign with him as the new Adam, and we will complete and fulfill what was lost in Adam due to sin. And we will rule and reign with Jesus. Now, you're supposed to get really excited about this truth. And they're supposed to be on men's coming from every one of your mouths. Because that's how the author uses this. It's a fantastic, almost unimaginable truth. This God who created things that David didn't see, that you and I can see with the Hubble telescope, and stand amazed at what God has created, and still ponder, well, why are we so important? Because he chose to create us as his image bearers to give dominion authority over his world. That's how much he wants us as his image bearers, to represent and reflect him. And that sin issue, only Jesus can conquer that. That's how the book of Hebrews chapter 2 uses it. Verse 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 remind us that God has given humanity dominion, authority over his world. That takes you back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27, following into the beginning of chapter 2 of Genesis. It's remaining, reminding that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Uh, You could translate that angels. Crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion, that's a key word, over the works of your hands, and have put all things under his feet. 
And then he lists all sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So you have these, this extraordinary statement that reminds us of God's creation ordinance in Genesis 1 and 2. He created humanity with this purpose, to be his dominion stewards, to be his theocratic stewards over his world. And even though sin entered into the world, Genesis 3, that dominion authority has not been removed. You see that in Genesis chapter 9, when Noah and his family get off the ark. I want to draw your attention to something, that the the statement, you have made him a little lower than the angels, a little lower than the heavenly beings, that's an interesting that's an interesting statement and crown him with glory and honor. Um, what does that mean? Does it mean that at some point we will not be lower than the angels? And uh, it, there's an interesting passage in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where the Apostle Paul is addressing what was apparently a terrible, embarrassing problem in the city uh, church at Corinth. They're suing one another, taking one another to law courts, to the pagan law courts, the Greco-Roman world. And Paul tells them that's embarrassing. That hurts your witness. And he says, don't you know that in the coming kingdom, you're going to have administrative authority over the angels? And if that's the kind of authority God's going to give you, then that means you should be able to work out these little problems on, on earth between yourselves and not take it to pagan law courts. And that's, that's an interesting idea. So I want to explore that a little bit when we go to Hebrews chapter uh, 2 in just a minute. And then at the end, he repeats the same thing we saw in verse 1. Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth, how lofty and honor and noble is your name of all the earth. So he celebrated God's creative work and, and worked into that the extraordinary dominion authority that God gives to humanity. But in Hebrews chapter 2, which is, I ask you to turn to that if you have a moment, I want to look at that because he repeats Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, which we just looked at, and makes this argument. This is all ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, if you have your uh, Bible turned to Hebrews 2, let me look at verse 5. What is, what is he doing here? The author of Hebrews, and that's the thesis of the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is the final and superior revelation of God. He's greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the law, he's greater high priest, etc., etc. So here, he's working in the relationship of Jesus to the angels, that he's far, far, far superior to the angels. So he writes in verse 5, Hebrews chapter 2, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been tested somewhere, and then he quotes from Psalm 8. So. This whole idea of God subjecting the world to Jesus is wrapped around his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and his second coming. So, in a very real sense, what the author of Hebrews is doing is, Psalm 8 is completely 
and totally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so he quotes, what is man? You're mindful of him, the son of man that you take care of him. You made him a little while longer, lower than the angels, yet have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So what the author is doing in Hebrews is taking Psalm 8 and say, if you really want to understand what Psalm 8 is talking about, it's talking about Jesus, the God-man, who is the Son of Man, verse 6, quoting from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 4. I'm, I'm sorry, Psalm 8, verse 4. That Son of Man is a title of Jesus, Daniel 7, 13, which is a, an extremely important messianic title for Jesus. And that everything being brought in subjection under his feet is Jesus solves the problem of the human race. Jesus solves the problem of sin through his death and burial and conquers the penalty for sin, which is death, through his resurrection and is bringing everything that is in rebellion against God, i.e. planet Earth, i.e. Satan and all of his demons, and everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection under him, he's left nothing outside his control, affirming the total sovereignty of Jesus Christ as the Lord of the universe. You and I say, wait a minute. I look at my world, a broken, fallen world, I still see rebellion. That is correct because this is referring to what is going to happen in what theologians call the eschaton, what is meaning the second coming of Christ, the establishment of his kingdom, where his sovereignty is demonstrated totally throughout planet Earth, where he totally defeats his enemies. And so he continues in verse 9, but we see him for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory, honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everything, for everyone. So the author is just reminding us that it is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and because his death was for everyone. It was a substitutionary, atoning death by the grace of God. And so, the author of Hebrews is weaving in to his argument about Jesus, Psalm 8, that ultimately this is really referring to Jesus. So let me add one additional thought, and here this is more what Paul argues in Romans 5, but it fits here. Under the first Adam, the Adam of Genesis 2, under and Genesis 3, under the first Adam, Satan usurped the authority that God gave to Adam as his dominion steward. And so that Satan now is the great usurper. Satan is the one who is the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the ruler of this world, what Jesus says in uh, uh, John chapter 17 and chapter 16 as well, as well as chapter 18, actually. All of those refer to him. And so Jesus is taking back this planet. Jesus is taking back this planet from the rebellious usurpation of Satan, and it's under Jesus that the sovereignty of God will be restored on planet Earth, because the rebellion ends. 
The rebellion is crushed. The rebellion is totally destroyed at the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is what Revelation 19 is all about. So the author's weaving in these magnificent themes of Psalm 8 and saying it is the second Adam. That's what Paul calls him in Romans 5. It is the second Adam that will deal with the rebellion, restore the total sovereignty of God over planet Earth, and subject everything under his feet. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, there's coming a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That has not yet occurred. We are still waiting for that. But you and I are part of the kingdom. We're ambassadors of the kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom. That's language the Apostle Peter uses. And we are therefore representatives, ambassadors of that king to this fallen, broken world. And this promise that Jesus is going to restore total authority of God to this broken world, Satan's interest is to destroy everything. Jesus' interest is to put everything back together. And that we await the second coming. But it starts with his death, burial, and resurrection and his ascension. So I wanted to work all that together. It's, it's tremendous how the author of Hebrews works in this wonderful psalm, one of my favorites, Psalm 8. It's one of my favorite psalms because you see this incredible, majestic authority of God that he then dispenses to humanity. And that's why I'm going to add one more thought. I just thought of it. That's why it's so important, Galatians chapter 3 and 4, and in the book of Romans, that you and I, as believers, you and I, as children of God through our faith in Jesus Christ, are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That's a phrase Paul uses. Because we're children of God by faith in his Son, and we're in his family, we therefore are heirs, indeed joint heirs with Christ. So you and I will rule and reign with Christ in the coming kingdom. And that, that's probably what Paul is talking about when he says to the Corinthians, when they're suing one another, don't you guys realize you're going to rule and reign and have authority over the angels? You can't settle these little disputes now? Future promises should affect present behavior. That's what Paul's appealing to the Corinthians. And in a much, much larger sense, that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. Because you know Jesus, and you know what he's done, you now are to understand that in him, this rebellion will be crushed, and the sovereignty of God will be restored. That's part of what Jesus, in the, in the Lord's Prayer, that you know, he prays, or he tells his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That, has not, that is not accepted yet by every living human being on planet Earth, but it will be. Either those who trust him and put their faith in him, or those who will do so because Jesus is the victor and the judge. All right, I wanted to work all that together. It's tremendous application in the New Testament of the fullness of this Psalm, Psalm 8. Any questions? Were the Corinthians all believers in? Is that why he's... Well, the Corinthian church to whom he's okay. writing. Yeah. Yeah, not, not the city of Corinth, but the Corinthian church. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> I have a minor uh, question on Hebrews 2.16. Uh, Hebrews what? Uh, Hebrews 2.16. 2.16, okay. <laughs> For uh, surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham... 
um, who, who are the offspring of Abraham? Is that a genealogical thing or is that a model? Uh, it would be the spiritual offspring. The word offspring in, in Greek is sperma. We get our word sperm from that. But Paul picks up on that in Galatians and in Romans, that there are the physical descendants of Abraham, i.e. the Jews, but there are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, that is, all of those who put their faith in Christ. We are the spiritual children of Abraham, not, uh, not Jews, not the physical descendants. And it, it's, it seems, therefore, in verse 16, that Jesus didn't die for the angels. Jesus didn't do his redemptive work for the angels. He did it. His help is for all of the offspring of Abraham, the Jews and the spiritual children of Abraham who accept Christ by faith. That's why we are, he concludes that in verse 17, we are therefore his brothers. We are in the family of God. And and it's it's like, this is not blasphemous, it's actually true. In effect, you could say Jesus is our big brother, and all of us are brothers. And a Jewish person who accepts Christ as their Messiah is also a brother. That's a, this is a wonderful, this chapter, chapter 2 of Hebrews is a wonderful chapter. We Didn't we study Hebrews? It seems to me we yeah. did. Yeah, I thought we did. I thought we had studied Hebrews a, a year or two ago. Okay, good. All right, any, any other questions or comments about Psalm 8 and, and how, we, how the author in, in Hebrews chapter 2 applies it? What, one more, Jim. Um, can you give us a one, two, three, four um, time? We're in, the, we're in this age, and then there's the culmination of time and how that sequences out. Well, we could spend the rest of the hour. On oh, yeah. Really, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, the um, I think the best way to to understand the age in which we live is how both the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul refer to this as the last days, and that uh, that means that there's nothing else. God needs to do in his redemptive program. The death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus inaugurated the new covenant and the new era. The culmination of what is sometimes called the era of the church, but the culmination of that will be the rapture. And, you know, that the, the discussion of the rapture is not the event, but when it's going to happen. And, and I don't really don't want to get into that at this point. But anyway, the next event, on God's program is the rapture of the church. Again, wherever you want to put that in, in the end time uh, scenario. And so that, that will inaugurate a very important sequence of events. Yeah. And again, it depends on where you put that event, but it will inaugurate a sequence of events that will lead to the second coming of Jesus Christ to earth where his feet go to the Mount of Olives. He walks down the Kidron Valley into the temple and then heads north to defeat his enemies at Armageddon. And that will then, and, and Revelation 19 is the key passage of that, and that inaugurates the kingdom of Christ. I believe Second, uh, I'm sorry, I believe Revelation 20 is referring to that, and six times a thousand years is mentioned. So I seem that reasonably how we should look at that, that kingdom will last for a thousand years. 
which will then result in a very small final rebellion. Jesus will snuff that out. It will have the great white throne judgment where all the unregenerate, those who have rejected the grace of God, will be judged and cast into the lake of fire, which will then be followed by the inauguration of the new heaven and new earth. Revelation 21, 22, Isaiah 65 and 66. Thank you. Is that uh, enough? No, that's good. That's okay. Good. Thank you. All right. Any other questions? Your thought paper for next week is summarize the basic point of Psalm 8 and then demonstrate how the author of Hebrews chapter 2 applies it to Jesus Christ. That'd be a great paper. Daniel, you want to do that one for your assignment? Tell your people at Moody that's what you're doing, okay? <laughs> All right. If there aren't any questions, that's that's great. It's a I hope you enjoyed this uh, study of the Psalms. Uh, we did eight of them. It spent a lot of time, actually, quite a few weeks. Uh, all right, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Both of these Psalms, uh, Psalm 7 and Psalm 8, just affirm those great truths. Uh, you are, in, in the words of David in Psalm 8, you are the, the righteous judge. You're the Lord who judges your people but it's per perfect. It's never unfair. It's never inequitable. But because you are the righteous judge, we can have confidence that you will ultimately correct every wrong, make everything right. And of course, that will all be done in and through Jesus because he solved the problem of the human race. He solved the sin problem. He died as our, as our substitutionary atoning righteous lamb died in our place, and conquered the penalty of sin death. Oh, that's so true. And at the same time, Psalm 8 declares, you are the great, majestic Adonai and Yahweh, enthroned in heaven, who created all of these fantastic things in the heavens. And we are so important to you because you sent Jesus to be our substitute. Thank you for that grand truth. Be with these men to be men of faith and men of God who honor you, who live for you, and who represent you. May they do it well to your glory. So I commit each one of them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week. Have a great week. Be safe.